The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. It's been a little while, guys. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we missed the, because of me, mostly, uh, missed our last show. And, uh, come back refreshed from a three-week hiatus up in Minnesota. Ryan was able to get up there a bit. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, great to see you. Good to be here. And certified financial planner, professional Ryan Repka, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Good to be back. So how was getting off? So you sent two to school this week. Yeah, good. You know, <laughs> most of the tears were held by mom, so that's good. <laughs> the boys did really well. So one in, uh, what, East Parents' Morning Out now? What's it? Uh, My Morning Out. My Morning Out. Yeah. It used MMO. to be called Mother's Morning Out when our children went there. Yep. So, I'm getting old, Fred. <laughs> now you got a new generation. And then you send your kindergartner off and today, this morning. Day one, we'll, we'll hold her breath to see how the day goes. I'm <laughs> well, sure it'll be fine. Well, I know my wife and your wife are going out. They're going to pick them up at, what, 1130 today and go to lunch, do all those things. So I'm sure we'll get our report. Yep. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, you know, Fred and Ryan, you know, when I kind of watched what was developing in my last week in Minnesota, I don't know why, after 38 years, I was certainly wrong. I thought, wow, this, this Afghanistan uh, deal might have some impact on the stock market. Yeah. Here we are trading at basically all-time new highs, at least for high-tech stocks and pretty darn close for, you know, the Dow Jones and the broad market, S&P 500. Um, it's, it's, it's making me think that this market is maybe a little more resilient than I've been thinking it is. Uh, and it's almost as if the professionals know the Fed's still, this is just my speculation, yeah. of course, you know, the Fed's still in control and going to remain easy for a while. Yeah, I think so. Again, it seems to uh, the, the economy and and even more so the stock market seems to overcome every impediment they've faced in the last uh, year or so. So again, we always talk about this now that who would have thought that uh, we'd be in this situation uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago at the beginning of the uh, COVID crisis. So. And now we're probably uh, I'm just I'm guessing just from our last show we were about 440 days since we've had a 10 percent correction so right. we can probably add another 30 days or so uh, to that and it's probably been uh, 260 or 70 days since we've had even a five percent correction. Right, and the economy I think is uh, where it would have been without the um, the COVID crisis right now, which again is very surprising. Uh, we, we've lost a lot of production in the interim, but uh, right now we're back not just to where we were before the crisis, but where we would have been had the crisis not uh, not intervened. And we're hearing more and more talk about the Federal Reserve maybe starting to scale back. They call it tapering. I guess that just means they're going to yeah. uh, quit getting, uh, doing, have, being so involved in the bond market and doing the bond purchases yeah. to try to keep, you know, short-term rates low, et cetera. And I remember a couple of years ago, it's almost three years ago now, when they 
first started hinting about tapering, the stock market went down quickly, 20%. um, And I think they keep talking about it a little more often, a little more frequently now, but it doesn't really... I don't think we're getting any signals that they're tightening anytime soon. Yeah, and most of the uh, indications are not right now, but sometime in the future, 2022, or something of that sort. So again, I think it's uh, a situation where... um, not much is changing. Again, I think the uh, the chairman of the, of the Federal Reserve is probably under <laughs> some personal pressure. He, he doesn't know whether he's going to be there. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that Janet Yellen, the former yeah. uh, chair chairwoman, yeah, uh, supports right. uh, Powell uh, to maintain. I think that's probably a pretty good sign. He probably right. will be maintained. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't you know I don't know enough about it. Um, it, but I read an article uh, from Brian Westbury the other day, and he reminded me of when whip inflation now back in the yeah. 70s. And I think I was under Ford, was yeah, it? Right. And it wasn't so much government policies to try to whip inflation now. It was more trying to get people to behave differently, you know, and don't purchase as much and save right. more, et cetera. And I think Alan Greenspan wrote in a book later, you know, how stupid he thought that was yeah. and certainly didn't have any impact. Yeah, it's called uh, Moral Suasion is not usually a very – Powerful kind of tool. We'll see how it works with the Taliban, I guess. Right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, at least I thought that was funny. Uh, so, and he wrote, and I thought it was kind of clever. He goes, and now we seem to be an SIN, start inflation yeah, now. Right. Um, with basically um, the goal of getting inflation not at the old 2%, um, you know, cur- target rate, but now 3%. And, yeah. and that, may be, that may cause some longer-term problems. And the, the Fed, though, I think is willing to... They said, except uh, even the long-term goal is 2%, they realize that uh, they may go above that right now, and they don't seem to be very concerned about that. So, again, it's, it's the the question, uh, uh, everything's fine now, but uh, when did we get back to normal? And getting back to normal, obviously, is a, a pretty big challenge. We have to somehow figure out a way to reduce our, our federal spending and also find a way to get back to a more normal monetary policy is one of the problems with all this increase in government you know as government gets bigger look we've spent i think five trillion already yeah. i'm not gonna argue whether it was made sense or not i'm just you know the facts are we've kind of injected five trillion into the economy they're talking about another maybe four and a half trillion um you know i, I read over the years about how basically you know the government doesn't create wealth it just distributes yeah. you know distributes things um, and that that can have this crowding effect on the private economy, and it can slow down the economy because it's only so many resources. Right. Is that a reasonable view? Well, yeah, I think it, it is in the long run. I think the uh, what happened was that we had this uh, unexpected emergency, and all kinds of things uh, were put into play to deal with that. But uh, it appears now that many of those things are are uh, going to become long term sort of. Um, a situation so the the, the economy uh, the, the the philosophy we don't have a obviously an official philosophy of government but it used to be uh, redistribution is mostly trying to help uh, people who are in severe need uh, uh, channeling our resources to people who are really poor really in distress but the new game is basically uh, half the co- uh, country or more presumably is is going to be helped by this and the other half or even the other 10 percent is going to pay for it and that's the situation that I think goes beyond where we've been in the past. So I think there are a lot of issues that uh, are going to have to be ironed out here. And there seems to be some, uh, even among the Democrats now, some hesitancy about going going along with the uh, 
the more extreme kind of programs that they've been been talking about. Yeah, it, it seems like we're speeding up. Uh, I don't know, maybe this is nutty, but it seems to me like we're speeding the march towards a more social collective view. Uh, we, there's a long history of capitalism versus yep. socialism, so to speak. You know, one ideology is, well, we'll let the marketplace decide yep. how resources get distributed in the best uses, and then the other view, we'll let the government decide where resources go, and, 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 and seems like and there's a lot of people worried about that. And yeah. Maybe maybe overly so. I don't know. But there's well, I think it's a, a, a real concern. And also, I think there's a kind of uh, uh, lack of understanding that people talk about the Scandinavian model as a, a kind of a, a, a place where the United States might want to move to. And, I, again, that's probably not a good idea. But what we're doing now is not the Scandinavian model. The Scandinavian model is to have high taxes they're paid for by most of the whole uh, country. The Scandinavian countries don't tax the top 5% to pay for everything else. They tax probably the, the uh, top 80%, and they pay for a whole bunch of things, including uh, health care and child, uh, child care and things of that sort. But they have a pretty much uh, open market in terms of uh, what's going on in the, uh, in the economy. So it's a high-tax, high-redistribution res- with a basically market economy attached to it. Uh, we're not really trying trying to replicate that now. What what m- most people see is having uh, a, a very small number of people pay most of the taxes, and everyone else uh, sort of benefits from the programs. Which I think is probably not a viable long term situation. It certainly is historically speaking has not turned out too well. Once it tips over, I mean, um, I know someone that always talks about, hey, we're getting to a point where we have more takers than makers. That's not my, my words, but you know, that's kind of just a blunt way of saying it. And is that, you know, I, I hear a lot of people wondering, is there this tip over point where you go, oh, now there's no one doing it. We're just. Well, I don't think it's a tip over, but uh, we can't continue the, uh, the COVID uh, style regime when we stop having the crisis. So again, we have to wean ourselves from uh, what's been going on in the last year or two which are we are we good at weaning ourselves? No, <laughs> historically speaking, no, not not really. I mean, we do it, but we don't go back to where we were before. The typical thing is, like a, a war comes along and government expenditure sure. increases by a huge amount. The war is over; it goes back, but never back to where it was before. So, I think probably what's going to happen is that we'll we'll go back, retreat a little bit from the. Uh, what's been going on in the last 18 months, but probably not go back to where we were before that. And then when it comes to spending in the sense of entitlements, et cetera, you know, sometimes I'll put them in there and they'll say they're going to be temporary. But politically speaking, isn't it always been a difficult task to take them away once they're there? Sure. And uh, two examples. Uh, President Reagan was obviously an advocate of smaller government, but he didn't do a whole lot in terms of cutting programs. And uh, Trump was even... uh, almost indistinguishable from uh, uh, Democrat, except for the regulation side. But in terms of uh, providing benefits, he was not very uh, disciplined to that either. I think, you know, in the near term, it would appear that, you know, from a forecasting ability, we've had a lot of government stimulus, government spending, uh, you know, that we probably get a little higher, you know, we get higher asset values, mm-hmm. kind of makes sense to me. We've been, we've been getting that. Uh, higher inflation, we've been getting that. It does seem like the inflation talk has tapered. Right, you know, the I think so. Gets, at least in my <clears throat> mind, or maybe I was on the lake more than I was watching TV over the last three uh, weeks, but it certainly <clears throat> seems that the talk about hyper type of inflation has yeah. diminished. Well, a lot of it was uh, transitory kind of thing. So you're, you're comparing it 
like the month of August as compared to the month of August a year ago when uh, nothing was happening. Prices were really uh, re- uh, repressed. So right. once we get by that uh, year-long sort of uh, situation where you're comparing this year to last year, I think it's going to uh, still be probably 2 or 3%, but not 5%. Same thing we talked about last time. Uh, stock market returns are fantastic now if you look at one year. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. You pick your points, and you know, depending on where you start and you end, it can be a completely different story. You're not really hearing that, though, out of the officials explaining that as you yeah. do so simply saying, well, of course, when you're comparing it to a year ago, kind of in the midst of the pandemic, everything's going to look like it's sky higher because it was it was really depressed prices at that time. Right. Uh, so it may not be. And we have some self-inflicted kind of bottlenecks now, too, in terms of getting people back to work. Uh, you know, you go into a, a McDonald's and it's uh, – uh, $3,000 of educational benefits, a $500 bonus, and uh, $16 an hour. So uh, those kind of things are uh, a good way to recruit people, but they're probably not going to continue forever in that uh, that kind of vein. Yeah, I noticed that the hour, uh, the wages for hourly limited service uh, restaurant workers climbed 10% in the second quarter compared to a year ago. Um, largest quarterly jump in years. For comparison, hourly limited service employees saw their wages rise just 4.1% in the first quarter compared to the prior year. So clearly, there's there, like you said, there's some kind of self-imposed uh, problems we've created, uh, particularly in employment. Um, it was interesting, you know, if I, you know, where we, where I am in Minnesota, you have to go 50 miles yeah. to go, you know, to find a Costco or yeah. you know anything of any size. Because uh, it's a pretty rural area where we are, and it was interesting. You'd say, "Hey, let's let's go over to Wendy's and get a burger." And you drive, and it's like, "Oh, drive through only." And I, I think <laughs> yeah. we're seeing more and more of that. And right. it's obviously a case of we just literally cannot get people to uh, to enough people to right. work uh, to to open our stores. And uh, so yeah, it's all. I mean, uh, it's hard to believe again. Going back, <clears throat> I'm probably no one's around. <clears throat> during, uh, during the depression, but uh, a situation where you can walk into any place and get a uh, uh, not a great paying job, but a, a job paying fifteen dollars an hour is kind of a uh, world that most of us aren't familiar with. And I suspect, from your history as an economist, I mean these things tend to work themselves out given mm-hmm. enough time. Right. Especially, uh, I think, especially this one because uh, again, I think we're in this transition phase now that we'll eventually get back to a more more normal situation. All right, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, I noticed that my son David, while I was gone, wrote uh, an article about the 529 plan. It's funny, uh, Fred, when people have their first children, yeah. you know, <laughs> how their, their thinking changes instantly, right? I think you'd agree with that. And, uh, and we've talked from time to time about 529 plans, but, you know, since David highlighted that article, and I know Ryan's talked a lot about it, I thought we'd refresh that a little bit. They're always supposed to uh, tell the grandparents about the availability. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, they're they're quick to do that, aren't they, Fred? Oh, by the way, I've opened this uh, 529 plan, and I, and Ryan, I, that was one of the first things you started tackling. Um, and Dave wrote how he's his strategy, and not suggesting it's a strategy for everybody, but his literal like people wonder, is my advisor eating what they're you know what I'm eating? And so he just laid it out exactly what he's doing, and he's kind of front loading it so to speak. Um, and I think his view from reading the article was, well, the power of compounding and time are right. pretty powerful. And the more I could probably throw at it, it's, ne- it's never a sure thing, but the more I can you know, throw at it early, it's going to do a lot more heavy lifting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you want, but before we do that, 
can you give people kind of a quick overview of the 529 plans kind of what's and most let's think about it in illinois terms at this point sure yeah so a 529 plan is in the simplest sense is just the most efficient vehicle to save for college you know if you know nothing more i'd say that's what you should take away from it it just allows uh you as any person whether you're a parent a grandparent or just a friend or a neighbor to save money in an account for the purpose of college and it, it is the intent and express use for college uh, approved uh, expenses and the monies go in and they grow tax-free uh, provided that the money is used uh, when you know the college term or maybe just a trade school need is is the use and not college uh, but the monies are used for approved expenses the money comes out tax-free um, and then also if we're talking about in the context of the state of Illinois 529 plan you also get a, uh, a tax benefit, it's a reduction in your tax for the, the amount you contribute into the 529. So it's a just a, it's a simple savings vehicle to help fund college or trade school needs. Um, and it's, you know, surprisingly a lot of people ask me like, well, you know, in the state of Illinois, I don't really trust them with my, my money and my finances. It seems like that's the one thing they're really good at messing up. And I'm always, you know, quick to agree with them that, you know, I, I can understand that fear, but I, I'll remind them or inform them for the first time that this is entirely separate from the state of Illinois. Um, it's an account much like you have a checking or a banking account. It's owned by you or whomever, um, and it's independent of the shenanigans, if you will, that happen in, in the state of Illinois. And it's also separate from the prepaid tuition plan, which right. is not, not a... Do they still have the prepaid tuition plan? I think they still have it. It's a plan that no reasonable it's, person would invest in right. because, because they're underfunded. So they're trying to pay off uh, the obligations to the people who are already in it. They don't have enough assets to do that. So if you joined it, you'd be basically funding the uh, the, the people who are already That's when you really do have to trust the state then, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's not something I would recommend. Uh, even and, when at the beginning of it, guys – I could never make sense of it. I'm thinking, well, how could you basically guarantee people the inflation, you know, and, and the the rate of increase for college education was, you know, pretty pretty high. Well, they didn't uh, they didn't factor in the fact that uh, uh, public universities are had huge increases because they're making up for the cutback of, of state funding. So they they erred on on two sides. They, yeah, they had too optimistic return expectations and uh, and pessimistic about they, they thought the rate of inflation was going to be a lot slower in terms of college costs and they were wrong on both counts yeah it would have been nice if if, if one could be assured or guaranteed yeah. then then i would have put every dollar in that yeah. plan because it looked like it well it was it turned out to be in my view what it, i thought it was something too good to be true it may actually turn out uh like a bailout that the uh, uh the technical language says that the, there's not a um, state obligation to pay, but there's kind of a moral obligation. So I would be surprised if the state uh, steps in to kind of bail out the the program. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I, yeah, I wouldn't be. Yeah, I, I'm not to the point where I'm overly pessimistic that I think people are going to end up losing. Or uh, there's probably a lot of different answers. Um, go yeah, ahead. So just to reiterate, so we're talking about there's two different plans in the state of Illinois for college funding. There's the prepaid tuition plan, which Dr. Gertz you're talking about. And then for the real purposes of this conversation, there's the Illinois 529 Bright Start Plan, which is just like a savings account that's invested in whatever you choose. So two, two totally different options. And today we're talking about the 529 Savings Plan. And, and I don't mean to confuse the issue more, uh, but there are kind of two sides even to that defined contribution side, the savings mm -hmm. side, 
One is basically do it yourself. And I think that's the bright start. Bright start. And then there's one where you go to like registered representatives. In my day, we call them stockbrokers, but uh, you know, people that actually, you know, that earn commissions and they'll guide you through it. And it's a different plat. It's kind of the same thing, but with advice attached. Yeah. And that one's called Bright Directions. Bright Directions. And, you know, for, okay, so let me attack that real, not attack it, get to that real quickly. Um, don't you think that the Bright Start plan is simplified enough? where even people that really people don't need much guidance on from that if they would just kind of follow the age-based stock index fund-based plan it's it's one it's really well designed fred right. uh, as far as understandability i don't know what you think ryan i, I think it is very well de- defined and, and explained however i think for someone who has very little to no experience in investing even that might be more than they okay. they have understanding of if you know they listen to the radio show or they were to call our office, for example, we could easily say, here's, here's what this means. This is why it's a simple approach. It's almost like a set it and forget it approach for those age-based um, selections you can make. And it just allows you to contribute funds into uh, the 529 plan as your child ages. There's different uh, investment allocations of stocks versus bonds that it's automatically shifting towards less stocks as the child gets older and gets closer to the need of using that money in that plan. So it allows a very novice investor simply to put money in and allow the plan to adjust according to age. Now, Dave mentioned that he's taken a little different approach. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it's always a personal choice, trade-offs here, um, where he claimed in the article that he's going to, for the first 10 years at least, be 100% stock market side as opposed mm-hmm. to any money in the bond market side. What's your take on that? Uh, I like it for somebody who understands what I'll call the rules of the game in, of investing. He knows what that means, and he knows that there could be a, a lesser likelihood of a negative event of that happening. But if you look at the returns over time, chances are if he makes a, an allocation change after 10 years, he'll probably come out a little bit ahead. It's not to say that will happen. And in a cataclysm, you have to say, well, in that case, I'm probably going to have to step up and do some of it out of my cash flow, which I think is part of his intent anyway, is kind of a combined approach. So he's taking a a lot of uh, understanding in our world of finance and investing and investing it based on his knowledge and understanding, which is not what most people have and understand. So I don't necessarily recommend that for everybody. Right. Uh, but it works well for someone who, you know, as I say, knows the rules of the game and knows what maybe probabilities may or may not be and what you can expect. And I think even 10 years out, it's still predominantly probably stock market exposure anyway. So, we're, you know, we're kind of like splitting hairs here a little bit. Yep. Um, I got to think that for most people who've never thought about funding a child's education 18 years or so from now, you know, what the challenges are. What's one of the bigger challenges well, aside of just saving, that could yeah, be but, the big one. But the real challenge is keeping up with the, the inflation of the cost of tuition and, and enrollment. So that is – and it's a, it's a multiple factor issue, and I'll explain that in a moment. So you have inflation, which is, you know, as we talk about, anywhere between 2 and 3% historically speaking. Uh, and then you have the cost of education that goes up in excess of that. And the, the inflation estimate is anywhere between 5 and 7% annually. So you have to get a, a big return in addition to that cost of inflation for school 
at 5 to 7% to try to make headway. What do you think of that, Fred? I mean, I know uh, that's kind of what we've been experiencing. What's no, your view, if you, ha- if you have one, like, is, is that probably a trend that continues? I think so. Again, it depends if, uh, obviously, a, a low-cost way of subsidizing the uh, thing is going to a community college for a couple of years. So, I mean, if you're willing to make adjustments, you can probably uh, beat the inflation problem. But otherwise, I think you probably will be difficult to, to match that. But again, I think what uh, what uh, Ryan was saying is that uh, most people probably are not, not going to say this is every last dollar that I'm willing to allocate to uh, my uh, children's education. So if, you, if things work really well, you can maybe cut back contributions in the future. If things don't work as well, you're going to have to kick in more. So I think most people probably should realize that and not treat this as if it's the only way the, the that you the, may have to get it perfect yeah uh, and you know come right into the first semester of the freshman year with the exact dollar amount you need right that's that's unrealistic unless you're willing to overfund it right yeah. and i think one thing too that this five to seven percent into uh intuition inflation each year gets a lot of press because obviously that's a big return you have to just get over just to get any return in your portfolio what that doesn't account for and what is i think uh less talked about is the fact that there is uh, need, like tuition need offsets. So as you get, um, you know, money for your for having good grades, or maybe uh, just uh, grants from the state, um, those those grants and numbers are also rising with inflation. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the five to seven percent is what you have to clear every year. It's also that the amount your student may receive in grants or funding and other f- sources may rise with it. So the net difference may not be 5 to 7%. You need maybe around 2 to 4%. Yeah, see, I'm on, I, I, I doubt if I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be wrong, but I actually see a deflationary trend for college right. education. I think, of course, that's broad brush stuff. I think there's always going to be Ivy League schools, and they're always yeah. going to be expensive, and the rich kids are going to get to go, and, and some that aren't rich are going to be able to go. But that's a small subset, right. I think, for most people. I personally view college education costs declining, not increasing. And I hope you're right. <laughs> and the, the, I'm probably not. I'm, that's just my yep. view of a world with technology tends to be deflationary, and I think right. technology is going to – I think what COVID has shown is – if we had to, we can pull off a college education. Right. And, and look what Google's doing and, and some of these other firms. They're, they're, you know, in six months, I think I'm right on that term. Six months, you get a Google certificate and they'll, right. I don't know if they'll guarantee you a job, but they'll basically yeah. say, if you do this, we'll hire you as yeah. a software engineer or something like that. The other thing, uh, which I think people are getting more and more aware of, is the, uh, the sticker price of education is not the real price. Uh, go to most uh, not necessarily elite school, elite private schools, but almost all uh, not elite private schools. Uh, virtually no one pays the full freight. There are mm-hmm. a zillion different uh, subsidies and things of that sort. That's the other complication. The one thing that I find incomprehensible is the interaction of you know saving yourself versus impacting the availability of aid. And, and some 529 plans, like a, a grandparent plan, may impact it in a different way. Than a, yep. and, and that's an area that is – So what you're saying is – It's complicated as taxes. You, you, essentially, in, in many cases, the more you save and do what you're supposed to do, the more you get penalized because they're saying, well, you got plenty of money, but Bob over there doesn't right. because he didn't save any money. But they're, they're also, just like the income tax, there are ways around that that uh, – Ryan may know about it. Uh. Yeah, so for you specifically, Dr. Uh, Gertz, you have 
I think talked about in the past funded 529s for your grandkids yeah. there is a strategy where you're correct if if a child is looking at the amount of tuition aid they may receive the grandparent 529 can count against them yeah. so what what anyone can do who has a grandparent funded 529 that's owned by the grandparent is they can uh, essentially give that over to their children who are the parent of the grandchild at a near time towards needing those funds so that the grandparent 529 doesn't count as a strike against the uh, the child and how much tuition they'll actually have to pay. So there are simple strategies around, you know, trying to help that scenario. Where, where do people start, though, when you, you, you got to sit down that first day and you say, well, gosh, 18 years from now, what's this going to cost? I mean, isn't that by itself it's way beyond? Yeah. I mean, look, I've been in finance for 38 years and it would probably I'd have to sit down and really think through that and, and do a number of simulations. I, I think, thankfully, the uh, the Bright Start website has a great tool for that. So you can go to or just uh, Google search Bright Start 529, uh, and they have like simple calculator that'll allow you to do a step-by-step walkthrough of how much you think you can contribute, what the cost will be, and it'll give you an output. Um, and it'll tell you, based on what you've put in, if you'll be able to meet the expected cost of that tuition need at whatever point in the future. If there's a shortfall, it'll tell you how much extra savings could be uh, stepped up each month. So it does make it very, I think, easy for any novice, anybody to be able to to say, okay, here's kind of a a real good view of what I need to do or if I'm on track. And of course, it's not perfect. And they they'll they're quick to point out it's there's a lot of assumptions that go into these these returns and these calculations. The goal is not perfection. The goal is really just to say, am I really close to being on track, or do I have some room? And so, this we is don't, yeah, I mean, we don't give a lot of confidence to the state of Illinois. But uh, if you take the passive funds here, they're really low cost, right? and it's a kind of world now where whoever. Uh, reconstitute this fund the la- the latest ha- always has the lowest fees so they, they just did it a couple of years ago and they their fees went down yeah. uh quite a bit it's, and, and it's they're so low really now good. that you could you could have them fall by 50 percent it wouldn't make much difference correct a, it's certainly not getting in the way any longer yeah. the cost yeah i think it was maybe about three four years ago they revamped the fund lineup in the illinois 529 plan they brought in vanguard and dimensional fund advisors as fund options which are uh, historically, extremely low fund options. Uh, you low know, cost, yeah. Low cost, sorry. Low cost options. So by perspective, maybe you would have seen a fund that costs 0.7%, almost three-quarters of a percent. Now you might see them cost 0.1% or lower. So virtually what I would call virtually free. Um, and that just means, of course, every penny not spent on fees for the fund you've chosen stays in that 529 plan, grows and reinvests, and goes directly to your child. And what approach are you following? You have two children, a third one on the way. Are, yep. You know, are you doing a combo plan, or are you just force feeding it every month, or just occasional lump sums? Uh, I've done occasional lump sums, so it's different for each child because you know it's different in the scenario that you're in. So the first child, we were um, having excess cash on hand, knowing there was a single child, two workers going in. I front loaded quite a bit of money into the 529, much like David's talking about the ability to put in more on the front end to allow compound growth. Um, And I'm using the age-based Vanguard option where it's the, uh, the, the, I think they call it like the extreme or the aggressive. 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 
investing scenario, which I always joke with people. I say, gosh, who, who opts in for aggressive funding in a 529? The difference between the aggressive and the, the next level down, which might be moderate in their, their marketing terminology, is a difference of like 10% ownership more right. in yeah. stocks. I've always thought that there was so many of these things that have been missed. Uh, right. You know, classified. Yeah, it's sort of like I mean, it's basically a, a target date fund mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a mini compressed window. Exactly. And yeah. So, go ahead, Paul. No, I'll go ahead. And I, I, one thing I don't think uh, again you need to confirm this, but uh, even though you have you'll have uh, three different funds for three different children, they can be switched back and forth in some ways. I, I think so. You're not limited. So if one child gets a scholarship or doesn't go to school or something, you can reallocate that. It, exactly. So if the, Or if the child just doesn't go to college or a trade school, the, you can change the beneficiary of the account. So it's not like the, the funds themselves are locked and lost forever. Um, and then another simple scenario, too, is let's say you just have a child. They don't go to college. They don't need the funds for whatever reason. All the contributions that you put into that 529 plan are yours tax-free. You've already paid tax on it. Um, they, and anything you take out that is like the growth will be taxed at your income level and a 10% penalty. Fred, so could you envision a day, sorry, Ryan, could you envision a day where the value of a college education is greatly diminished compared to 10 years ago? Um, I, I don't, I, I think that, uh, it depends on, or not what, as valuable. It depends on what kind of college degree. I, I think the college degree has, uh, two important things. It's a screening device that shows that, uh, People have the ability to, to take instructions and and uh, follow through on things, and without regard to necessarily skills. And there are other degrees, engineering degree or accounting degree, that actually impart uh, kind of skills. So both of those are, are important. Uh, but again, uh, there are a huge number of degrees that uh, probably uh, uh, don't don't uh, generate a lot. The, the, the recent scandal, not scandal, but recent revelation on the part of the Wall Street Journal is there are a huge number of schools that were giving uh, master's degrees, uh, not giving, but people were paying huge amounts of money for master's degrees that had virtually no no value. So the, the old thing is, well, you, you go to school to become a, a puppeteer and you can't find a, a job being a puppeteer when you graduate, so you get a master's degree in puppetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you can teach it, right? Well, it's just, you know, I just find the whole thing fascinating. I, my opinion is at this stage of my life, and maybe it's because just as we get older, we just start thinking differently. But I think at this point, if I was looking for a, another financial advisor for the future, I might be more inclined to find a really sharp high school graduate, grab him or her for four years instead of college, teach them everything they really need to know about the craft. And I know people are against that because then they're leaving, you're leaving out other aspects of what college is about. But I'm pretty sure that person would be much more employable at a much higher wage than a college graduate. And know a heck of a lot more. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm not sure if you... You can say I'm full of If you, if you, uh, <laughs> you have this person who, who has great skills and so on, you say, this is my associate. He uh, graduated from high school and he's going to help you. Uh, that, 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 the, the so you think there could be some bias? The imprimatur of a, of a college degree is uh, pretty important, I think. I th I, I, you're probably right, because I always had a hangover because I went two years at Parkland College, yeah. and then I went three years at, uh, yeah. uh, at Eastern Illinois, you know, certainly yeah. not a, ma a major college. And you might get a chuckle out of this, but when I first started doing this radio show, 
And of course, I lived in the, the town of yeah. the University of Illinois, you know, famous academic institution. Yeah. Um, and one or two of my first radio shows, 30 some odd years ago, oh, I must have been a little liberal in my <laughs> views. And I got a scathing letter from Jim Hines, who <laughs> was a right, professor at the University of Illinois, recently, yeah. died recently, and just shook me to my bones. <laughs> so he and I went to lunch at, uh, oh, the Greek restaurant. It used to be on the corner. Uh, Casinas. Casinas. And he took me to lunch. I was nervous. I mean, I was 25, 6, 7. Yeah. I don't know. How old, maybe, I was a little older than that. And we were talking, and I kind of talking about my background. Must have been kind of shyly. He goes, now stop that. I go, what? He goes, you went to Eastern Illinois University. Any state school in the state of Illinois is a wonderful university, right. and don't count yourself short. Right. So I got over it way back then. Right. Not that that has but, anything but, to do with the show. I just I feel better saying another story. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a famous consulting firm, Ennis Knuff, uh, which uh, kind of uh, started the not started, but was part of the trend toward passive investment. So, on Richard Ennis as the founder, yeah. and uh, they're long gone now, merged with ten different times. But anyway, uh, they would hire college graduates and not encourage them not to go to graduate school, and they would do a basically in-house training uh, for a couple of years and they they came out uh, sort of like dimensional advisors probably does and uh, kind of a think tank they basically say hey yeah we'll we'll give you your extra couple of years yeah 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 i think there's definitely a trend towards like at least some of the bigger like tech companies who are not necessarily placing a absolute requirement on college as being a prereq anymore i think the door is opening a little bit i think it'll continue to open there is big signaling like you say dr fred about you know, the ability to go through a four-year program, learn, show you're capable of doing it. But I think there's a, enough people who are kind of free thinkers um, and people that are maybe more extremes and say, you know, if you just show me that you can follow directions and you're willing to learn, um, I'll teach you what you need to know. Yeah, I doubt if any uh, 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 game app developers have, right. have a college degree requirement. Sure. <laughs> yep. That kind of makes sense. I mean, those are very specific skills. Look, we want you to be a software engineer. We want you to run code. Uh, in this yeah. particular There's one, one last aside. Uh, uh, the the uh, head of, the, of CalPERS, the, the biggest pension system in the world probably, uh, did graduate from college. Interesting. Uh, but she worked her way up, and then she promised to go to school, and she didn't really fo- follow through on the promise, but she's still presumably doing a, a very good job. Right. Good. Well, we're going to go to a call here in a minute uh, from Jim. And uh, until... Uh, here, we're going to patch in. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Pretty good. I have a question about 529. Yes, sir. Never quite understood, but does the five, when you give money to a 529, uh, can you give it to as many uh, uh, students in your family as you want? Yes, you can. So there's not a limit to the number of people that you can contribute funds to. They would they would have their own account, presumably, and they would be the beneficiary of that account. Does a 529 gift take it out of your estate? Not unless you do a very large gift. So you can gift uh, $15,000 as an individual into a 529 as a, as a joint couple. You can double that up. Uh, and then there is an extra provision where you can do like a super funding option where you could contribute 
five years worth of those contributions in one tax year, so 150,000 or 75,000 for an individual, um, right into a 529, and it has no impact on your gifting uh, credit. And only the first 10,000 uh, generates the state tax savings, so you're limited to 10,000 for a person or 20,000 for a, a couple. Correct. But you can still, you can give more than that, but you don't get the, uh, the benefit of the, of the state tax. Of the state tax credit, exactly. But you can certainly front load it and not have to report it like you would if you gave a gift over 15,000. Yeah. But even then. Go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to move on to another subject. Yes, sir. Um, a corporate tax, uh, they're getting ready and going to pass all this stuff, and it's going to raise corporate taxes substantially. We're always told that uh, they're not going to tax the, uh, anybody but the rich. Uh, Trump took the corporate tax uh, way down to make our economy uh, more uh, uh, our, our economy more uh, even with the rest of the world. If they raise that back up, say five percent, everybody uh, corporations don't pay tax, so that's a tax on everybody of say five percent. Uh, that seems like that's kind of a deadly thing to do. Right, it's uh, it's going back on uh, what w- was generally agreed on a situation where the United States had uh, tax rates above the rest of the world and want to get back into into sync again. Uh, that's unlikely to happen unless uh, we get this compact. Part of uh, Janet Yellen and, and uh, the Biden administration's plan was to try to get other states, other uh, countries to. Uh, raise their tax rates more or less to the same level as the United States. And everyone says, says that's a good idea, but when it actually comes to doing it, uh, there's going to be a strong incentive for Ireland or Luxembourg or something. <laughs> you'll, like you'll have better luck with the Taliban. <laughs> yeah. So, again, uh, I don't think that it, it, it may be raised, but it's going to be a, a modest increase. And if there's agreement with other countries, it may not have a big impact. So I, I think it's something to be concerned with, along with all the other things that are happening about potential higher taxes. But by itself, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a deal breaker in terms of uh, what we're talking about, investing and so on. In fact, I have but an article. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. It will, be a tax. it will be a tax on everybody that buys anything. Sure, to a certain, yes. And uh, it's going to also be a tax on uh, on investment returns, so not just the corporate sector, but every place. But again, uh, a five percent increase is a pretty, you know, not not anything to dismiss, but it's not a huge kind of change. So I think, uh, in the world of all the things that might happen, this is one of many things that probably are not a, not not necessarily a good idea, but not necessarily a catastrophe either. In fact, Jim, in a minute, I'm going to talk about because we get this question from an investment standpoint: what 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 might it mean for stock market returns? Yeah. And I think people are going to be surprised by the answer, and I'll go over that if we have time today. Well, they they keep saying that they, it won't be a tax on anybody that makes less than four hundred thousand. My my yeah. assessment is. There'll be one or two percent, or maybe even three percent tax on everybody that buys anything. I think that's right too. I think that's reasonable. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks Jim. for Thanks. your help. I still remember Milton Friedman. I always like to go back and watch his old, yeah, his old discussions, and he talked. I just, I can, I can just visualize it. Like here, he talked about corporations not paying taxes any more than a book can pay tax. Right. Now, he said a very nicely dressed man will write a check for $10 million, <laughs> right. send it to the IRS, but right. he didn't pay it. 
you right. know, and then ultimately it comes either from the shareholders' returns, dividends, or higher prices. Or wages or whatever. Or yeah. wages. And I'm not arguing one way or another. But since Jim brought up that topic, and frankly, I, I hadn't really researched this. There was a Yahoo Morning Brief, uh, April 26th, actually, and they were writing about how the prospect for higher taxes continues to be a concern for investors. And basically the summation of the uh, article, it was talked about, you know, why it's probably a hindrance for many companies as far as, you know, enough for a stock sell-off or poor returns. Um, so uh, BMO, uh, Capital Markets Equity Strategist Brian Belsky looked into it. Answer isn't all bad. During the five prior corporate tax rate increases in 1950, 51, 52, 68, for, and 93, the S&P index posted an average calendar year gain of 12.9% with a positive price returns in each instance. The gain was well above the 4.6 average return registered during the nine annual periods when the tax rate was reduced and also 9% higher than the 9% price return for all calendar years going back to 1949. And I'll just summarize it here. It says, uh, our returns lower during higher tax regimes. Despite common perception to the contrary, our work shows that there is little evidence to suggest that corporate tax rates have any type of meaningful impact on the U.S. market returns. Now, this is one article, so I'm not going to grab something yeah. from the Internet and assume it's gospel, but it's pretty pretty credible people uh, talking about the data. And that, that surprised me a little bit, Fred. Yeah. And I, I think it all goes back to, yes, uh, but... But it's be, corporations are in, have the ingenuity uh, and the smarts to say, okay, well, that's the new rules, but we still have to create increased profits and increased dividends over time. Right. It, you know, so, so I think that will surprise people. Yeah, I think there's always a, a sense of tight, like belt tightening that happens whenever you impose a new set of rules, as you call them. In this case, the rules are higher taxes. So the goal is always to increase shareholder wealth for anyone who owns, uh, partic- you know, particular company shares. And so the the goal is, well, now that we have higher taxes, that would reduce the amount of, of wealth. We need to find areas in our production or in our staffing that are either costly or that could be improved upon or technology could come in and reduce costs. So there's always this kind of like ebb and flow where it's like a, a back and forth where now companies will have to look at maybe their, their internal systems and decide if there's some areas for improvement. And that could also help, you know, give credit to why maybe, you know, in this article it points out, there's higher return years after a tax increase. I just think, um, as a person who's been an entrepreneur for 38 years, essentially, just tell me what the rules are and kind of try to keep them steady. I, you right. know, I may not like them, you put them where you want them, but if, to me, a steadiness so that I can make decisions would right. be more important than the actual levels of taxation and those things. Um, we'll finish up on this for a few minutes. Um, this is from Squared Away Blog, and it squares, Ryan, I think what you and I face every day. Uh, for most retirees, figuring out how much money to withdraw from savings every year is difficult to impossible math problem. Now, editorial here. Uh, uh, William Sharp called it the nastiest problem in finance uh, from a Nobel Prize winner. A 2009 study estimated uh, by the time middle-income retirees in their 80s, they still had not touched about three-fourths of their savings. And 2016 research found that retirees with substantial assets are the most reluctant spenders. That's kind of interesting. You, know, you would think the people with the most assets. And that squares with what I deal with for the last 38 years. I don't know kind of right, your feelings about that. There is a, a kind of a hidden psychological cost. If you think about uh, 
taking money out of a 401k to buy a new automobile, you have to take out uh, $50,000 to buy a $35,000 automobile, plus pay the sales tax in addition to that. So it's kind of a psychological hurdle. It shouldn't be, but... Well, now let's think about it also in the terms of when they're talking about people in their 80s. Well, people in their 80s grew up at at worst in the shadows of the Depression. I think it has a lot to do with that, too. And so now you're asking that person who grew up in the shadows of the Depression to take out $50,000, pay $15,000 in taxes. So it all makes sense to me. And he wrote, people saved all their lives to make sure they will enjoy retirement. So why are they so reluctant to spend money for the purposes it was intended? Then there was a Journal of Personal Finance survey. Half the survey respondents agreed with the statement. The thought of my retirement portfolio balance going down over time brings me discomfort, even if the decline in value is a result of spending money on my retirement goals. Yeah. That is, a, you know, because chances are if, if, if a person's going to create a dynamic financial plan and the goal of the plan is, hey, I want the highest lifestyle I can with the income sources and the assets I have, there's scenarios in there where you're going to spend down, your, you know, at some points. Um, even it, it, you know, it doesn't take horrible returns to do it. But anyway, there's going to be periods where there's no progress or, or negative progress in the stock market, and you're going to be spending, and that's going to happen. And that, that when people yeah. stare at it up on the page as a possibility, you can tell that really, yeah. really has a, they have a hard time with it. Yeah, it carries over to uh, pension funds. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, this pension fund's in trouble. They're paying out more than they're uh, taking in. But if you have a mature pension fund, the, the whole idea is that you're going to be uh, paying pension benefits based upon past contributions and earnings, and it's not surprising that sometimes you may pay out more than you take in. It says the enormous unknown is how much they will need for medical care. That seems to be one of the uh, – and we, we deal with that, uh, particularly for people. There's kind of two ends, uh, the kind of people that retire pre-Medicare, you know, that is health care concern, but – as time goes by and the longer we all live, we know more and more people that are having some long-term care costs, and then all of a sudden things we didn't worry about when now we're worrying about those. So that makes sense to me. Um, people who are the most concerned about their medical costs are also more likely to be uncomfortable about spending their savings regardless of how old they are. And that all circles back to why when they look at you know the habits of people once they're in their 80s, about that they've drawn down very little, mm-hmm. if any, and in, in my case, when I look at most of my clients, they're probably at the zenith of their assets, even though they've been spending money every year along the way. And, and I think that's why you wrote a really helpful article one time, you know, titled something along the lines of, are you going to wind up being the richest person in the graveyard? Right. Yeah. Um, so many people, they look at their investment account, much like a bank account, and they think it's got to stay at this this high watermark or very close to the yeah. top. Otherwise, they they insert peril and they won't be able to fund and live their lifestyle um yeah there's a lot of anchoring that goes on and you know it's like oh i always wanted to get to a million dollars now i'm there i never wanted to go below a million dollars but it was the decisions they made to put up with fluctuation that got them to the million dollars and there's been a real change now that uh a lot of uh, pension funds and investment people are talking about not investing but taking it out and Robert Merton's another Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah. that, that's his interest now as well. Yeah, he's, that, he's doing the deep dive in that and uh, really he's trying to fix that uh, and try to figure out how to make defined contribution plans like 401ks, kind of turn them into pensions. So I think you'll see a lot more coming out of that. Well, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. We'll be back the second Tuesday in September. Can't believe it. Second Tuesday in September is right around the corner. Go Illini. I'm excited about this Saturday. Finally. 
Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.